0: The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's twice weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the state of the Conservative Party since Brexit with our special guest, Professor Tim Bale. Tim Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and many political journalists go to academic on all things Conservative. I've definitely had him on the phone to explain things particularly about political party members to me many times over the years. Tim's with us because he's bringing out a book called The Conservative Party After Brexit, which is out at the end of this month. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim.
1: Thanks very much, Anush. We're really pleased to be here.
0: So I think, first of all, having dived into the depths of recent Tory party history from the 2016 EU referendum until now, until Sunak's premiership, do you think you could describe the phase that you think the party is in now? Because in the book, you warn against the idea that the Tories are going back to normal in some way.
1: Yes. And I think the narrative that Rishi Sunak and his supporters are trying to promote is very much that he is taking the Conservative Party back to the mainstream. The grown-ups are finally in charge and they're putting behind them, all that populist stuff. Whereas actually, if you look at the way the Conservatives intend, I think, to fight the next election, uh, I think they very much are building on the populism that we saw under Theresa May and uh, Boris Johnson, particularly, obviously, with the stop the boat stuff, but Mm -hmm. also generally with the kind of anti-woke story that they're trying to run. I think... More generally, I think the Conservatives are rather stuck in some ways, because on the one hand, I think they are still pretty, for want of a better word, neoliberal. They are putting up taxes, but only because they have to. They're not exactly spending as much as they need to, for example, on the welfare state or on the NHS. So that's one side of the sort of the Tory party. And on the other, there's this very populist strain, which, as I try and argue in the book, is beginning to drive the party to becoming a kind of ersatz populist radical right outfit, really.
0: Yes. And it's so interesting the way that you chart that journey in the book, because ironically, it's because of the Tory party's history of always trying to see off a sort of right wing challenger.
1: Yes, I think that's really vital to understand. The absolute nightmare for the Conservative Party, and indeed for many centre-right parties throughout Europe, is that they will be somehow either displaced or at least lose votes to a populist radical right challenger on their flank. And clearly for parties in continental Europe, that can be in some ways more of a problem because I think voters don't necessarily see voting for those parties as a wasted vote in the same way as they do under first past the post. For them, there's always the possibility of doing a deal with those parties in Parliament, in coalition, whereas you have a really problematic scenario for a Conservative party as in the UK under first past the post, where a party like the Brexit party or indeed Reform UK could siphon off a lot of votes that might go to the Conservative party, but they won't end up with many seats. And therefore, they aren't really a coalition or at least a potential coalition partner. So for the Conservatives, the the absolute sine qua non has to be preventing a party like that getting too much support. And almost everything you can talk about since probably David Cameron's days actually in, in, in the Tory leadership is the prevention of that happening really.
0: Yes. I wanted to go back to David Cameron's time, actually, because did you see any seeds of this in the days of his premiership? Because often when we talk about politics becoming populist in the UK, we talk about Brexit and Boris Johnson, basically. But were there any seeds in it in in the Cameron years?
1: Yeah, I think clearly when it comes to immigration policy, Mm. you can see that the policy of reducing it, it seems laughable now (laughs) from the hundreds of thousands to the tens of thousands was clearly aimed at a certain voter. And actually, you can trace back back the conservatives desire to appeal to working class voters on immigration right back actually to five right. if you want to but clearly from the 1960s onwards there's been that kind of populist strain in conservative politics i think clearly when you look back at david cameron's decision to call the referendum which he made in in the summer of 2012 and then declared it in 2013 that did have a lot to do with trying to suppress support for what was then ukip the problem for the conservative party however is that the more that they talk about this stuff, the more they raise the salience of those kinds of issues. And if they fail to actually deliver on their promises, for example, in immigration, then actually they give more grist to the mill of people like Nigel Farage. And that's exactly what happened, really.
0: Yes. However, it hasn't always punished them electorally, has it? it? They're probably one of the world's most successful centre-right Parties and even though you know this, you mentioned that net migration target of the Cameron days, which I think carried on through a number of manifestos since him. They've never managed to achieve that. For example, I suppose Brexit was a- achieved via absorbing those UKIP politics into the party, but they've stayed in power.
1: They have, yes, that's true. But they've had to make move, as I say, away from a kind of mainstream centre right position where they flirt with populism, as it were, <laughs> to a position where as I suggest, in some ways, they almost transmogrified into a populist radical right party. I don't think that transformation is complete yet, but they've gone some way along that that line. And I guess the question is whether they can bring it back or whether they want to bring it back. I think one of the problems for the Conservative Party going forward, of course, is that they're doing this in a country which is becoming gradually more liberal on issues like immigration and not just immigration, but also it's becoming more multicultural, more multi-ethnic. Is there a long-term future for a Conservative Party that might be pleasing the readers of the Daily Mail or the Daily Express, but actually those papers' readerships are gradually shrinking? and are not going to be reflected in the electorate for very many years to come.
0: And it's a cliche, but it's often said that the Conservative Party is particularly good at reinventing itself. And I just wonder how you feel it's reinventing itself at the moment. You say that sort of Sunak's taken on some of those populist tropes. Again, they're trying to present themselves as a sort of a safe pair of hands and trying to avoid that nasty party label as well, which is off-putting to a lot of voters. Do you think they, they can prove successful in reinventing themselves in some kind of new way?
1: I think sometimes people look for more consistency, if you like, and coherence in political parties than they need to have. (laughs) It's perfectly possible, I think, for politicians and indeed voters to endure a degree of cognitive dissonance. (laughs) And that clearly does, in some ways, give some hope for the Conservative Party. But I think sometimes they can be too clever in the sense that, It's quite difficult nowadays, I think, to talk to one set of voters without another set of voters learning or hearing or seeing what you're doing. And there is potentially, anyway, a trade-off between the kind of policies that appeal to the, with the stress on Red Wall voters, (laughs) on the one hand, and policies that appeal to the Blue Wall voters. Now, having said that, of course, for the Conservative Party at the moment, they can afford to lose a lot more Blue Wall voters than they can afford to lose Red Wall voters. So perhaps that that populist stop the boat stuff there is still some mileage in it clearly and it might help them particularly if the economy begins to recover I must admit I am a little bit sceptical about the idea that values politics has completely overtaken the sort of economic fundamentals when it comes to elections I still think they're very important.
0: Okay and let's talk a bit about the role of the leader because we've had a number of different leaders in the past few months you write that they're at once both incredibly powerful and incredibly fragile can you explain a little bit about how the structure of the party is made?
1: Yes and I think to Understand the Conservative Party, you have to understand that it really is a leadership oriented party. If you look at the constitution of the Conservative Party, basically what the leader says in terms of policy is what the policy of the party is. That The members, as you have absolutely yeah. no say in the policy, at least formally, although you can argue that they're able, along with what I call the party and the media, to, yeah. to influence policy. And that means that leaders are in an incredibly powerful position when they're doing well. But the flip side of that is that when they're not doing well, it's actually fairly easy to depose Mm -hmm. of a Conservative Party leader. In other words, because there's so much focus on the leader, the party has, if you like, a kind of fail-safe mechanism, which means that if the leader isn't doing very well, they can get rid of them. And and that, of course, has uh, been found by Theresa May and, of course, by Liz Trust at their cost.
0: Yes, and that's really interesting. I was interviewing John Curtis for a piece that went out over the weekend, we were discussing it in the previous podcast episode but he was saying that although parties are always punished at the ballot box that reside over a financial crisis like the one we're having, he couldn't think of another example where a party had changed leader after the big, mm. like the mini budget big disaster and that could potentially make a difference but you had a piece over the weekend warning against the sort of, the, the influence of a presidential campaign if you like
1: Yes, I think again one of the sort of conventional wisdoms we've developed about British politics is it's become more presidential yeah. so you know, a party that's in trouble In terms of its brand, which the Conservative Party is clearly in in trouble over, um, will try to rely more on its leader, particularly in an election campaign. But of course, recent precedents suggest that actually that's not such a great idea. We'll all remember 2017 when Theresa May was right front and centre in the Conservative Party's campaign, that was a complete disaster for various reasons, which I go into in, in the book. Actually, there there wasn't very much confidence by the people who were influential in that strategy in the Conservative Party's ability to win that election as handsomely as many people supposed. They thought that actually by placing Theresa May at the centre of the campaign that would be a good thing. But what they didn't know was quite how poor a campaigner she was. <laughs> and the people who did know quite how poor a campaigner she could be were so convinced they were going to win anyway that they agreed to that strategy. But also, if you look at 2019 even again there's this common wisdom that somehow it was Boris what won it whereas actually the research suggests that although Boris Johnson's decision to get Brexit done and to put a lot of emphasis on that was important Boris Johnson in and of himself wasn't anywhere near as important as some people think. But yes, yeah, so bring it back to your original question. John Ramsden who was a historian of the Conservative Party actually from Queen Mary University of London once characterised the party as an autocracy tempered by assassination and- <laughs> (laughs) And I I think that still very much stands. Right,
0: Okay. Because the received wisdom in Westminster is that the Tories will run a campaign with sort of Sunak as front and centre because he's more popular than the party brand, as you write very well. And there are are potentially limitations on that because of the examples of the May and Johnson. Yes,
1: although I have to say, I do think Sunak clearly will be better able to front a campaign than Theresa May was. Almost anyone would be better able than (laughs) Theresa May to front a campaign. And he has got fewer flaws and probably less antipathy towards him than Boris Johnson has. I right. think one of the problems at the moment is that Sunak's ratings appear to be ticking up slightly, but that seems to be as a result of Remain voters who might have been slipping towards the Lib Dems or even Labour from the Conservative Party thinking this guy isn't so bad after mm. all. But many of those Remain voters actually probably won't vote Conservative anyway because those you know that Brexit legacy is still there. Whereas he's not so well regarded by the voters that the Conservative Party desperately needs to get back, which is those converts from Labour from 2019. That uptick in his fortunes, which is encouraging the Conservative Party to go for that very leadership-focused, presidentialised kind of campaign, there are some problems with that.
0: Mm, and we don't know how good a campaigner he is. Anyway, he's been his style of premiership has been interesting recently, hasn't it? Because he's do, he seems to have done quite a lot. Gone to meet Macron. The, the sort of deals with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol, but. He doesn't, he's not really that present. It's often his ministers that are out. Yes, I think that's
1: true. And, You're right to say, if we look at the 2022 leadership campaign, there have been so many, he's not the greatest of campaigners. He doesn't connect as naturally with voters as you would hope. Then again, perhaps Keir Starmer doesn't either. He is prone to the accusation that he is so fabulously wealthy that he's out of touch with people. Moments like his failure to use a contactless card, for example, (laughs) in a petrol station will probably be replayed again and again. There's this whole stuff about his heated swimming pool. And even, although this seems very trivial the tone of his voice mm-hmm. is not authoritative at all it's it's rather thin slightly high pitched even a little bit camp some would say and when people are looking for a leader they're looking for someone who they regard as strong, whatever that means, and whether actually his voice helps with that, I think, is a moot point.
0: Yeah, I've heard people in the party, in the Tory party, compare it to a children's TV presenter kind of style.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're often not allowed to talk about these things, particularly with political scientists. You yeah, know, sorry to lower yeah. the tone of this yeah. conversation Tim, after all of your yeah. political <laughs> research. <laughs> these things shouldn't matter, but I think they do. But then again, once again, to, to make the point. Keir Starmer's voice is nothing to write home about either. (laughs) We've got one children's presenter versus a very strangulated North London lawyer. So, you know, who knows which will come off best?
0: And before we move on to the second half of the podcast, I did want to ask you, because you make a, a big point about this in the book, about the party and the media. It's a key part of the way that the Conservative Party operates is in newspapers, magazines, editors, commentators, outriders in the media, the think tank world. Can you explain a bit about how... That operates in terms of its relationship with the party and what impact it has, and maybe how different that is from sort of Labour's equivalence.
1: Yeah, this is where I suppose I do come back to political science, which tends to, when it's looking at parties, break them down into the party on the ground, which will be the membership. The party in central office, which is the kind of bureaucracy, if you like, of the party, and then the party in elected office, which is politicians themselves. But what it forgets is that actually there is another key component of political parties, which is particularly present, I think, in Britain with its very partisan printed press, which is what I call the party in the media. And what I'm trying to stress is that actually... The party in the media, as you said, those commentators, those journalists who, you know, routinely are part of the conservative conversation, part of the conservative milieu, if you like, have far more power than your average MP and certainly than your average grassroots member. And that's partly because MPs believe in their power still to persuade the electorate despite actually quite a lot of research to say that's overblown, but also because they worry that that media has an influence on their grassroots supporters and that may push MPs in in one particular direction. So in other words, what I'm trying to stress is that an editorial in the Daily Telegraph or a column in the Daily Telegraph or a campaign in, in the Daily Mail is actually quite likely, and I show in various episodes in in the book, to have an influence on what the party leadership does, even in government, even over quite crucial decisions. So for example, although many people seem to have forgotten COVID, you can see in the way that the government handled COVID, it was very aware of campaigns, particularly in the Telegraph, particularly in the Mail, over opening up the economy again, getting people back to work, getting people back to the office, etc. And that did play a part in the government's decision making for good or ill, on a couple of occasions probably for ill, and on one occasion where actually it ended up being the right decision not to go into
0: lockdown again for good. Because we know the sort of quote from Dominic Cummings that Boris Johnson saw the Telegraph as his sort of real boss. I don't know if that's the... Yeah, I don't think I don't think Dominic Cummings
1: is exaggerating there. I think obviously politicians always have paid some attention to what's being said in the papers, but I think Conservative politicians in particular pay a lot of attention because the press in this country is so partisan and so on the side of the Conservative Party. They feel it has a, an outsized influence both on the electorate, on their own MPs, if they're the leader, and indeed on, on their grassroots. So I, I think they just simply cannot afford to ignore the press. And now Labour obviously is, to some extent, scared <laughs> of the press, but it's not its, its friends. It's not its party in the media, as it were. It's the opposite side of things. So I don't think the Labour Party leadership is anything like as scared of the Guardian and the Daily Mirror as the Conservatives are of the Telegraph, the Mail,
0: and even, believe it or not, the Express. After the break, we'll talk about what's next for the Conservative Party, its record and its electoral prospects. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward, and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news, and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: What's really interesting is that you've identified the way in which the Conservative Party has changed in its rhetoric, the party of the people. And the way of doing this has been some sort of populist features like the disregard for institutions, attacks on the judiciary, the press, civil servants, contempt for parliament, all of these sort of populist trappings. But actually, that, that sort of position as a defender of the people hasn't necessarily tr- translated into policy. So Boris Johnson had his levelling up agenda, but we've seen sort of various bits of research that show that it's either not being noticed by the the people who ought to be noticing it, or it's not diverting the funds in a way that it's supposed to to have done to make it fairer and more redistributive. Is the party so detached from this idea that it's a defender of the people? And is that something that will have to change in order to keep its integrity?
1: I think clearly you've pointed to the fact that it is first and foremost, if you like, a rhetorical, rather than something that necessarily informs their their policy, except at a very superficial level. And I think you're right to pick on levelling up as a good example of that. Were the the promises to be translated into delivery, then presumably we would see a lot more money and a lot more attention going into those areas that the Conservative Party have pointed to that have been, as it were, left behind for decades. And we do see a little bit of that, but it's nowhere near to the extent that it needs to be to make a, a really big difference. Likewise, clearly they are putting some funding into the National Health Service, which after all is, if you like, the religion of the people (laughs) in this country. But again, just nowhere near the kinds of sums and the kind of attention that would be needed to really turn around that position. So I do think you point to a problem, which is delivery. And although, as I've said before, competence has taken a bit of a back seat in the way we think about politics, we've talked about values a lot and culture a lot. In the end, you you, you can't promise people the world without delivering them at least a slice of, of that world, without them becoming rather sceptical. And people are pretty sceptical in the first place. I do think that there is a big mismatch between the rhetoric and the reality and I think that probably will lead to the Conservative Party being punished at least by some of its former voters at the next election.
0: Yeah because they really do roller coaster through ideologies don't they? And if you think back to Cameron you had a sort of small state but big society kind of style of government and then the economic sort of nationalism, statist, redistributive kind of aspirations at least of Boris Johnson and then the sort of guerrilla neoliberalism of this trust. So what are we on now with Sunak and does it matter or is this part of the Tory party's great skill of reinvention?
1: Well I think we're On, if you like, uh, this amalgam, and it's an unstable amalgam of on the one hand, quite traditional small state or as at least small state as possible conservative policies. And then on the other, the kind of more populist style of politics that we'd got used to under Boris Johnson. I'm not sure that necessarily can work because there is a contradiction in some senses between the two. On the one hand, you can't promise people the world if you're not prepared to actually spend the money to give them at least some of that world. But that appears to be what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt want to do. Now of course on the right of the Conservative Party, there's a lot of anxiety about the fact that we are actually quite highly taxed. But that doesn't mean that Rishi Sunak and and Jeremy Hunt aren't Thatcherites. They are trying to do the best with what they've got and they're not they're not ending austerity in the way that I think some people on the right would suggest and some people on the left (laughs) would probably like them to do. I certainly don't buy the idea that there's this sort of new consensus. We've seen quite a bit of that in recent commentary, for example in The Economist there's this idea of, what was it, heaves, heaves. a combination between Hunt Jeremy and Hunt and Reeves. and Reeves. I just don't see that, really. I think Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak's heart is still in that kind of Thatcherite, small state, low taxation, low spending kind of conservatism. I just don't see much change there, apart from force majeure, in that because of Brexit, some would argue, we just haven't got the growth that would allow us, I think, to do some of the necessary stuff without raising taxes.
0: I think I agree with you. One of Labour's big sort of flagship policies is a big green stimulus package. And you just don't see any of that from Hunt and Sunak, despite what's happening in sort of peer countries.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any attempt on the part of the UK to to match, although of it couldn't match in absolute terms, IRA in the United States of America or indeed what's going on in the EU as as well. They talk about Britain being a science superpower, for example. Um, it's very difficult to believe that, that Britain is actually capable of doing that, given the amount of money that they're willing to spend on it.
0: And we've spoken about the sort of the pitfalls of a presidential campaign and the struggle of the Conservative Party to deliver and the <laughs> paucity of its record. But you have written in your book that support for the Tories might just prove more resilient than many of their opponents imagine. Why do you say that?
1: Because there are still big doubts about the Labour Party among some quite crucial groups of voters and we have to remember it's easy to forget in some senses because Labour's got such a big lead in the opinion polls that it's going to need a really massive swing although not quite as big sometimes as some people suggest (laughs) as you know from your conversation with with uh, John Curtis to make it back into government even with a very small majority. Oppositions don't often turn around that kind of deficit in one term. We have to remember that. We also have to remember that the economy while it isn't going gangbusters isn't failing as badly as perhaps some people thought it might Rishi Sunak has begun to develop a reputation at least for competence and delivery and that might help as as well so I I don't think everything is negative for the Conservative Party and of course if they can increase the salience of issues that play well for them, immigration might be one of them, then there is a chance that in, in some key constituencies that may make a difference although I say that in the long term I don't know that the kind of populist appeal is going to be good for the Conservative Party, it might lock them into a a strategy that actually doesn't have much of a future. I'm not sure that future is going to come by 2024, (laughs) if you like. There still are a lot less educated, white, working class voters of a certain age for whom, you know, that kind of populist appeal does hold some value. I think though in the end the economic fundamentals are very difficult for the Conservative Party I have to say this. Talking to Will Jennings who helped write the book on the election in 2019, he tells me that really you need to look at real wages Mm -hmm. and you need to look at the extent to which a government can get real wages going up say six months at least out of an election and that doesn't seem to be happening. The government will be able to say inflation is going down but that doesn't mean prices are actually (laughs) reducing in the shops so people are still going to feel that. And then of course there's the National health service and if you look at the way that Labour is able during election campaigns to massively increase the extent to which the health service becomes the kind of number one issue or the number two issue Mm. then you know that's going to be quite difficult I think for the Conservative Party next time around having said never say never because politics is quite volatile and mm. voters don't have the party loyalties as much as they used to so they can switch back and forth. I still think it will be quite difficult for the Tories.
0: And your book is all about how Brexit has affected the Conservative Party. To what extent do you think Brexit will be a feature at the next election?
1: That's a really good question. I think many Conservatives, even those who are quite keen Brexiteers, in some ways would like Brexit to disappear in the rearview mirror and yeah. I think you saw that in the vote for the Windsor uh, Agreement or yeah. framework uh, a week or so ago. Uh, having said that, if you look at the electorate, then the research from the British election study shows that those identities are still quite important to voters. And there's been a degree of, if you like, sorting so that a lot of Leave voters feel naturally inclined towards the Conservatives, while a lot of Remain voters feel more naturally inclined to Labour and to, to some extent, the Liberal Democrat. So if those identities can be mobilised in some way by the government, then that puts the Conservative Party in a good position. The problem is, how do you mobilise them? It'll probably have to be indirectly through the immigration policy, the asylum policy, for example. I don't think it can be on Brexit per se, and that's going to be a big problem. Because in 2019, there's absolutely no doubt that it was Brexit plus Jeremy Corbyn that, that did it for the Conservative Party. And further to that, it's quite clear that it was the promise to get Brexit done in order to tackle public services, mm-hmm. in order to make people's lives better in their hometowns, in order to do something about public spaces or whatever. That was the key to the Conservative victory. That's not really going to be something that they repeat this time around.
0: Okay. And and how do you feel about these the polling and also narrative about the extent of regret among the population? Because perhaps people... Maybe they don't regret their vote because that's quite a big psychological shift. But perhaps they don't see, like you say, the spoils of Brexit that we were promised.
1: Yeah, I think that is quite clear. And John Curtis's work shows this really obviously, that in as much as there has been a switch towards regret or even perhaps in some people's cases to, towards thinking maybe we shouldn't have done it in the first place mm. and maybe we should actually rejoin the European Union at <laughs> some point. That has got an awful lot to do with the economy. People feeling that the promises that they were made by the Brexiteers just aren't coming true and in fact the situation has got worse rather than better. Now that does in some ways offer the prospect of an improvement for the Conservatives because if the economy gets better then presumably there will be <laughs> (laughs) less regret (laughs) Uh, but I just don't think the economy is going to get that much better to make that much of a difference. I think there are a lot of people who are already quite sceptical and that was the reason why some of them voted Brexit in the first place feel that they've been led up the garden path once again by these bloody politicians and I guess the question will be whether they decide to actually come out and vote in 2024 to give those same politicians a bit of a kicking or whether they just return to the kind of apathy which meant actually previously they were non voters.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And and in terms of the Conservative Party's sort of Brexiteers, you say that even if Brexit might not be done for the population, it feels close to being done for the politicians who were the ones driving it. Who, what's next for the ERG or those kind of pressure groups within the party that you write had so much influence over policy?
1: I think we've passed peak ERG now. <laughs> you can see that in the vote on the Windsor framework. But what we've seen is that those groups very often morph into other groups around other issues and a good example of that would have been the COVID recovery group. There was quite an overlap between the ERG and the CRG and there was also quite an overlap between people in the ERG and the net zero security group I think they're called. I lose track of what they're all (laughs) called to be honest. And it's possible that they will find other issues in 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 the course of time. There, there is clearly, if you like, a kind of hardcore of quite nationalist, quite populist MPs within the Conservative Party who aren't particularly bothered by the kind of discipline that MPs normally try to <laughs> abide by. I think partly it will depend on who the next leader is, to be honest. I think if, as many people suspect, the Conservatives don't win the next election, I can't. See Rishi Sunak st- sticking around, whether he'll go off to California as yeah. predicted, who knows? <laughs> if they elect someone like Kemi bad knock, then it could be that actually the Conservative Party sort of doubles down on that, you know, ersatz populist radical right approach, in which case she, if it is her, won't have too much trouble from those MPs. They'll be very much on her side. Likewise, Suella Braverman. Mm. If, on the other hand, they do go for a rather more kind of centrist managerial, pragmatic mainstream centre-right politician, I've no idea who that would be. I think there will be more disciplinary problems for the Conservative Party. The integrity of the Conservative Party, I think, will be under threat. But But I think we also have to say that isn't just to do with the Conservative Party, right? I think the developments in social media and media more generally mean that MPs can become legends in their own lunchtime um, (laughs) much, much more swiftly than they used to be. And they can carve out a career for themselves. By, you know, being on Twitter, if Twitter still exists, being on 24-7 news, you know, going on you know, politics live or whatever. Yeah,
0: having a GB News slot. Yeah, having Yeah, a
1: paid GB, yeah, pay a GB <laughs> News slot, if GB News lasts that long, of course. And I think that's a sort of structural development that, that probably will affect all parties. And at the moment, we don't see it from Labour, mm. but we might see it from Labour, although there probably will never be a sort of left-wing equivalent of GB News, of course.
0: Thank you so much, Tim. That was fascinating. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my guest, Tim Bale. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley.